I am Jay Sabella Smith. Thank you for coming to the online photo book book group, which would have been held in my Somerville studio a month ago today. And I had to leave my studio, obviously. We actually went a little early because of some exposure uh, of one of my studio mates. So I hope all of you are safe and well, and I appreciate the um, connectivity that this platform gives us. And I had wanted to do a photo book book group without a real clarification of what it would look like. I have a photo book obsession. I have an art library. I open that at my studio for people to come in and share it. And I wanted to just have conversation about all these amazing creative objects that I have and get to talk with the makers about their concept development because that's what I do. I work on concept development. So this morphed very quickly online when I was tapped with a photo uh, um, gallerist that I work with in Germany and a photographer and we just jumped in. So we are learning as we go. Um, we're getting much better. We have you go through Eventbrite to um, be another layer so that we don't get Zoom bombed because that happened too. Um, and here's what happens. Um, I personally know several of the um, authors, not everyone, but I invite them. Sometimes a gallerist pops on, sometimes a publisher. Um, here's what happens is this is unscripted. I literally, uh, Fran gave me a PDF. I do know Fran from the um, photo community here in New England, but it is not like I sent her questions and it is not like this is scripted. So what, how I frame it is that I really want to have an opportunity to share the work with you if you don't have it already. And then I want to give the creator um, the opportunity to go between two places. Um, one is to engage in the aesthetic and the impact, uh, the, what I would call punctum, uh, which I hope you are all learning and thinking about if you follow me. And the other is somewhat the um, production and what does it take to make a photo book and what are some of the creative choices. Because in my curriculum, Concept Aware, it is all about the creative choices. And I think that we often um, truncate our process and think we're at the end of it when actually there are ways and ways to divide and, and change and layer. So, so I just told Fran, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna bounce between the two. So. I don't know how many of you know Fran. I'm not going into a long um, introduction. I think we'll talk about some of her, her histories, um, but uh, she comes out of a field that I do too. We both have an MSW and um, she went into uh, art making has always been a somewhat parallel uh, part of her life. And in the early 90s, um, she entered into the whole world of what can be done digitally in Photoshop. And that opened up a world to her and then she's opened up that world to us. Um, so I think of Fran as a, um, actually a painter with pictures. And um, I can ask you, Fran, if you want to give us a, um, a broad brush uh, background of what you what 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 led you to here. This is your second monograph, and um, 
why don't you give us a quick overview? How did you get here? Hi, everybody. Um, so I had um, produced, had a book produced in 2014. It was called Escape Artist. It was published by Schiffer. And those were the days in which a publisher would actually pay for the entire book. So I was very excited to have um, the work I'd been doing up until that point published in that book. And it was about 120 pages or so. <clears throat> and the way that that book started was that I had actually taken a workshop with Sylvia Plackey some years before. And as she was looking at my work then, she said, this is a book and it should be called Escape Artist. So that's where that title came from. And I'm really indebted to her for the idea and I'm indebted to Schiffer for actually publishing that book. And I hadn't really thought of it. It was a mammoth process and I hadn't really thought very much about doing this again until I was approached by uh, another publisher about three years ago and I, my, my images, the images I make are, are really narrative images. They're complex. And although I show in galleries quite a bit, I often felt that I was more interested in the narrative sequential aspects mm -hmm. of my imagery. Mm -hmm. So I started to think more carefully about putting it together in a book. I spoke to several publishers and one in particular resonated with me. That company is called Unicorn. They're out of London and they had recently published uh, a book by a friend of mine named Tom Chambers, who's another photo montage artist whose work I love, and uh, the wonderful photographer in LA named Hiroshi Watanabe. And they were both very happy working with Unicorn, so I decided to do my work with Unicorn. Also, I wanted the work to be seen, I wanted more of a presence in Europe and the UK uh, than just in the United States. That was the other reason I went with Unicorn. So we signed a contract in April 2018, and the book just came out in March, this past March. So you can see or hear that it's a it was a very long, very complicated process. Uh, the production uh, was done in China, and uh, thankfully the books were <laughs> sent from China before the pandemic hit. So the books arrived in Chicago, I think in February or in January. So the idea behind the book was that I didn't just want a book of my images. I wanted a book that was a beautiful object. And as a, since my background is not only in social work, but also in graphic design, I, I was very interested and it was important to me to integrate the text with the imagery and each spread to be as elegant as possible. Not just a book of my images, but a book of people's responses. So what's a little bit different about this book than other uh, monographs is that I invited people who had commented on my work in the past, if they would feel, uh, if they would be willing to write something about an image that inspired them in one way or another. So I wrote to about 34 people asking if they were interested and 33 agreed. Um, so there are 33 writers whose works are adjacent to the images that they picked up. Somebody's got a phone and needs to mute. Okay. I think 
that's KK's. Sorry, guys. I this technology is new to me. Okay, <laughs> we are very patient. I can't turn the damn thing off. <laughs> there, there we go. Sorry, sorry. It's going to happen to all of us. So, KK, what I was saying was that I invited various different people if, and asked if they wanted to comment on some of the images. And the way that I did that was once I selected the images I wanted to include, I put up a secure web page, and there were about 110 images. And the, pers the people who had agreed would pick an image, and once they picked an image that they would want to respond to, I would eliminate that from the web page. Uh, so, I wondered about that. Okay, I wondered so that, if more than one. Did it. Okay. There were, a couple, there were a couple occasions in which a lot of writers, uh, several writers picked the same image. So I would have to explain to one that it was already taken. And so that was a little bit difficult. And I was really interested in people from different backgrounds, not photographers necessarily, not artists necessarily. So the, the what I call them contributors, the writing contributors uh, consisted of people from many different disciplines, a couple lawyers, a couple doctors, some photographers, some artists. Um, there uh, was a physicist, a computer scientist, a Jungian analyst. The most interesting to me was a man who was exonerated after spending 32 years in prison. His name is Vincent, Vincent Rosario, and so he picked three images. Uh, there were a number of poets, and once they submitted their writings, I didn't edit them. I didn't think that my words were important. I wanted to hear what they had to say. And at the beginning of the book, I talk about the reason for this, which I see as a conversation, that mm -hmm. all art is really a conversation between the maker and the viewer. And it's also between what's in my brain, what's in my hand, and the viewer. So it's important that the writers, the contributors, are really part of the conversation. And in fact, the book is dedicated to those people who are part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, one thing that I was concerned about. And then in terms of the design, I didn't want a hierarchy of importance between the writing and the artistry. I, I wanted a kind of equal balance between the words that people submitted and my imagery. And I wanted, uh, I wanted it integrated in a, um, in, a, in a way that was very careful, uh, very carefully thought out. So, um, so that's sort of the idea. The book is divided into five different, what I'm calling chapters. They're different sections. The concept, the overarching theme of the book is about the in-between state. Because as you can see, most of my images really refer to that liminal space between dark and light, nighttime and daytime, uh, childhood and, and adulthood, history and the present, coming and going, absence and, uh, and, and, and beingness here. So it's that moment between moment. And as I think about it, the period that we're going through right now, this crazy, terrifying period, is also a period of in-betweenness. We know what our lives were like before March, but we don't know what our lives are going to be like when this is all finished. Mm -hmm. So we're in that in-between period right now. So in many ways, these images sort of refer to that in some sort of 
prescient way, which of course I had never anticipated. Mm -hmm. So the book is divided, as I said, into five uh, sections or chapters, and each one refers to a different in-between state. So and I'm going to actually stop you there to ask this, um, because thank you for bringing up graphic design. I knew that uh, and didn't get to say that in your introduction. And I think, you know, anyone who's followed you knows that you are collected and in some uh, museum uh, collections as well as exhibited and that you have had um, international exhibitions. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I'd like to go back uh, and talk about a few things that um, you've covered, but I just want to pick apart a little bit. So I love that you talked about the writer contributors, how you got them. And also I wondered if more than one person would go for a particular image, what you would do. Um, it's really nice to hear how well you um, were responsible to their response and not edit it. So I think that's really interesting. But I think one of the things I'd like to, um, I, want, I have two questions. One is because of your background with text, um, and graphic design, it, it, it really highlighted for me the relationship between text and photography. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I thought if you're a graphic designer, um, topography is important to you. And, and I was wondering if you ever put actual letters or words in your images or thought about that. So that's one question. But the second question has to do with where I just interrupted you, which is the decision to have the different quote unquote sections or chapters that you name the liminal spaces. And I'm curious if you, where that came in in the process. Did you think of the spaces that are in between? Where are the rest points or where do you think your work um, lives in between and articulate those places and then create images to reflect that? Or like the chicken and the egg, which came first? Okay, should I, <laughs> that's a lot, a lot to So start with, I know I laid out a lot, two questions, oh. but the first one I want is to, to be talked about is the decision of naming the liminal spaces and if that happened as a construct for the book, or had you thought of the overarching theme of the book and then started to create imagery that went into particular spaces? I don't know whether the images um, inspired you to create categories or whether the categories inspired images. Good question. It's actually not, it was not a linear, a linear or binary process. So there was a lot of back and forth. Mm -hmm. And with a mammoth project like this, the most complicated, the most challenging, the most frustrating part was trying to find that overarching thread that uh, in, my, in my existing work. So no, I did not create images for this book. These were images that I had worked on over the previous decade, half decade. But as I was going through all of those images, I began to see certain threads that were not apparent to me initially because I don't 
and I do not create in series, except for right now, I'm creating a series about the corona period, but that's different. All of these images were done almost as separate paintings. They were done at separate times in my life. So that meant that I had to go through every single one and try to find some thematic connection, some tissue that pulled them all together. And by far, it was the most complicated, uh, challenging part of this process. But once I did that, once I started to see things that had that connective tissue, I could start pulling them together as different groupings. Um, each, so as I was able to do that, I could see that in fact, yes, I have a lot of images of people leaving the scene or trying to connect to each other, but not quite connecting relationships that were not quite connecting, falling apart. Uh, images in which history met the present, like in this, like in chapter three. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, connections between contemporary and historical periods. So those started to pull together. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you again. Sorry, sure. but only because you are making do. me think of too many things and I have to go back and grab them or I'll lose them. Um, okay. One is um, really, really interesting. You just said separate paintings, which I think is really interesting um, of, of actually how you look at your work. And I know that in one of the articles that I read, you, you described yourself as a painter who uses digitally captured photography. So I think that's important for our audience to understand your relationship to your craft and where you see yourself in relationship to it. And I love that you're giving us this insight into um, you looking for the connective tissue because um, uh, I call it an overarching aesthetic or a thread. And what happened as you described it is you started to get in conversation with your work, which I find really interesting because you describe art or you describe your work as you love when it, well, first of all, you said art is a conversation and then you love when people are in conversation with your work, but to create this book, you had to go into a conversation with your work in a different way than you had before. Yeah. yeah. And I That's, find that really, really interesting and very important for people who are listening in terms of developing your work. And I refer to this a lot in my curriculum. You are in relationship and you need to listen. And there's so many times when our head gets ahead of us and we want to put it somewhere. And frankly, when you let the process happen and it's organic, uh, there's a grounding to it. And um, so it's really interesting to hear how you looked at, listened to your work, and then it led you to this. And then the other part of why I stopped you where I did was um, you mentioned not creating in series. And I was thinking of this middle piece and it feels like a series to me. And I wonder if you could, uh, you've, you've named it the between history and presence. And um, again, a chicken and the egg, it seems like you 
were working in series in terms of um, almost referencing Renaissance attributes or um, even the socially um, imbued parts of, of costume and what that said about a person's uh, social hierarchy. And so this feels series-like to me. So can you talk about this particular chapter or I don't, do you like to call them chapters or sections? I'll call them chapters. chapters okay. So, okay. so for people following along, we're in the third chapter, which is between history and presence. So uh, can you talk about the, this one? Uh, this yes. Chapter. Well, this chapter is different than the others. First of all, it's in the center of the book. It's surrounded by two chapters before chapters four and five. I'm going to interrupt, excuse me, so, France, sorry to interrupt, but I can see something that you can't, which is we just had a request to name the chapters. So you alluded to them before, but it wasn't clear that you were actually talking about chapters. So the liminal, liminal spaces you articulated in the book, and there are five, are between light and shadow, yes. between together and apart, between history and presence, which is what is on your screen right now. Correct. Between missing and meeting. Right. Between reality and illusion. Illusion, correct. So we're talking about the third chapter between history and presence, and I am challenging you to, um, to give us the background about how this came together and um, it feels out of everything the most serial-like, so. Um, first of all, I, I, I don't work in series, but I do evolve, my artwork evolves over the years. Mm -hmm. And this was a period that began several years ago in which I became enamored of, uh, of the work of of painters from the Dutch Reformation period. So that would be 17th century primarily. Mm -hmm. And I started studying them as much as possible and then shooting my models uh, in certain positions, but then compositing, uh, costuming from some of those paintings mm -hmm. that I shot at various different museums and trying to replicate the feeling of light and, and also of uh, elegance of that mm -hmm. period of time. It's a very interesting period of time in terms of society, social changes, the Reformation. Uh, and I, I really immersed myself in that period of art history and, and social history. Mm -hmm. But while I was working during that period of time, I wasn't thinking of, of a book. I wasn't thinking of this at all. So in terms of the book, the evolution of the book, when I started trying to uh, organize the book by editing and sequencing, sequencing, I saw that there were these in-between times that my figures are contemporary figures, but in obviously 17th century garb, or even earlier than that, Renaissance garb. 
Uh, I do want to explain that this chapter is different. It's in the middle of the book. It's chapter three. So as I said, there are two chapters before, two chapters after. And what I wanted to suggest was that these would be portraits in a museum, but in a special room of portraits. So it's a gallery of portraiture in a museum. And you'll see that there's patterns of, of wallpaper that surround my imagery. And sometimes the wallpaper is incorporated into my additional into my original images, but sometimes the images sit within the wallpaper. And the wallpaper was actually shot from various different museums that I visited. So the Metropolitan, a museum in California, and I was one of those crazy people who go into a museum and actually shoot the wallpaper as opposed to <laughs> shooting some of the paintings. So, but I did want this to look like a very different kind of a, a, of a chapter, a different suggestion mm -hmm. of incorporating wallpaper from that period of time along with my contemporary images. Mm -hmm. uh, there was something else you had said earlier, Sib, that I wanted mm -hmm. to respond to, which was Good. your question about graphic design. Yes. And yes, my background in design made me completely obsessive about the design of this book. And I hired a designer uh, out of California whose work I had seen in the past, but we worked very heavily. So I had given her some mock-ups of what I wanted the book to look like she was able to kind of take it one step further in a way that I don't think I would have been able to, nor would I have had the time, because mm -hmm. the design of this kind of a book is extremely uh, challenging and time consuming. Um, what I got mostly out of being a graphic designer was my respect for the use of, of space, the use of very small amount of space that you have in order to convey an image, uh, to convey an idea and an emotion. Mm -hmm. So for me, that uh, developed into my interest in the use of every single pixel. Where does each pixel go? What, what information is that pixel giving you? And that, I think, developed from not only working as a designer, but working as a type designer and working in typography, where the negative space is as important as the actual use of the letter form. Mm -hmm. so, this is, I love, this page I think is a, a, a perfect example of that in terms of giving a lot of room. The portrait just, I feel like she's going to walk out of the book. Well, this spread was actually created exactly as you see. So yes, um, I, I did. I, I designed, the original image was this young woman against a black field, but for the book, I, I incorporated the photograph, the uh, wallpaper that I had photographed mm -hmm. so that I could make the double spread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this, this did work well. Yeah, and I saw another example uh, right back here uh, on the left of where you incorporated the wallpaper within the portrait and then within the page. And right. when you mentioned uh, that you hired a designer, I think that that really speaks to how many uh, places you as the creator can um, take, like how many tasks? Like I think that um, collaboration is so important and that letting someone who their, uh, their art form is book design make their 
bring their art form to your art form only enhances because, you know, as a photographer, we're often in the position to talk about our work, to write about our work, um, to contextualize our work, to edit and sequence our work. And I think that it is very challenging to wear all those hats. So I, uh, I applaud the collaborative nature as well as the, the one that you did with the writing um, contributors. I think that's so, so interesting. And, um, you know, it was obviously your intention. And I think it's really interesting that this uh, gallery of portraits is in the middle um, because it is really held up by the two chapters on either side that um, are more dreamscape-like for us. That's true. That's uh, absolutely right. Yeah. So, um, and I try to pull things out that I see when um, one of the last things before we leave that middle chapter is that you, A, did research. I wanted to go back. Let's see. Um, so you're researching a particular period of time and then you are pulling from it like I noticed very much you're pulling some of the poses this one especially made mm -hmm. me uh, to see the appropriation here of where you're looking at potentially uh, paintings from the Renaissance or or Dutch masters and you are pulling something from them that informs now and, and as an artist, I think that's really important to be aware of how we're lay, layering concept and also about the, um, the research leads you to all these places that you can then have more creative uh, decisions. Like I love that you've got something here of, of voting, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> So that's we'll vote. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Well, each one of the can you hear me? Each yes. one of these most of these images surprise if you go back to the uh the not that one, the one of the Korean woman, well that one too. This woman. If you look very carefully on her earrings, it's the Korean national flag. Mm -hmm. And she's and so there are lots of little surprises that I keep there for the viewer who wants mm -hmm. to spend time with each image. Well, I think that that's um, so important that the viewer does take time with each image. And I don't know, I'm not sure about this reference. You, you and I like very similar things in the sense of um, I love topography and I, I am a sucker for wallpaper <laughs> patterns. And when I, when I was studying fashion in Paris at the Louvre, they literally have 200 years of fashion on computer and they also have the decorative arts. So you can literally sit at a computer and pull up examples and I used to be so enamored that the people that worked there would come up and tap me on the arm and go, we're going to lunch, like see you later. <laughs> and I just would draw from these, they're really patterns that are on wallpaper and they're stunning. But when I look at this, I think of the, um, a combination between, isn't it UNICEF that has a similar uh, pattern here? I don't know. I honestly, 
I honestly I think it reminds me of that. And, and somehow I think of Olympics and a, and a crown. So I would encourage, um, you know, that's a great, um, gift that you're giving people a place to spend time and explore and, and room for, uh, riffing almost and discovery. Like secrets are always good. Like I totally loved when I realized what was on that <laughs> campaign or it's not really a campaign button, but a political button. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, so going in, and I also want to highlight the fact that you, um, you went back into your work to have that conversation that, um, that timeline that we have between what we create and how we put it out in the world is a porous place. So it's really interesting to go back. Um, and there was another, like, I love the lace that you have uh, here. And there was one other, I love, of course, that she has a tattoo, like where you bring in the now. But there was one other in this series, I'm going through to find it, this one, which really made me think that you were getting into um, other layers of research in here. I don't know what I'm looking at exactly, if it is, I, I don't know what the graphic is behind the um, It's it's a star map. It's a 19th century star map. So, you know, it's so interesting. I was going to say, is it astrology or astronomy? And now when I'm looking You're on right. my big screen, do I see Smith shoe? Uh, that bird? would be, yes. Well, <laughs> you do. Yes, because that was in the original star map. Wow. That's so that right. actually must be like Orion's belt. That must, must be, be. Yeah, a yeah. star right. pattern. And that one happens to be called a Smith shoe. Hilarious. Didn't see that till now. So uh, something else about this that I, I mean, it's just an aside. This was yeah. a very complicated image to put together. But in the detail, the blow up, you'll see the hand that's holding a hedgehog. Yep. So that hand and that watch was a man's hand that I shot at the Dallas Zoo many years ago. <laughs> and I love the hedgehog, so I incorporated it into my image, but. Well, it's so interesting because, uh, you know, in preparation for this, I read all of the links that you sent me and I, and, and I think about um, things that I heard you say, um, like that you, thought one of the best things that you were told was to make art for yourself. Correct. That's and, true. and when I am teaching, my mantra is follow what lights you up. And, and literally, if, if, if you are engaged, enthusiastic, curious, and, and something lights you up, that gets conveyed to the viewer. Okay. So, um, Fran, I don't I want to interrupt what anything that you were saying, but if you need, uh, we had a question. Sure. Got it. Yep. What was the question? Uh, the question was, I'm seeing it right here from Bob. Fran, how did you end up choosing the cover image? Oh, I, 
God, if I could only remember. I, there, were, there were five different images that I was considering. And this one spoke to the concept of that space between, the rest between, partly because there's a bed, because there's the child who's moving out of the scene. He's moving off the scene, but also because there was a space to put the title of the book. So what we were talking about earlier was the integration of image and text. And that was probably the reason that we chose that particular one. The publisher wanted a different image. He wanted one uh, that's a very bold, bright red image that's in the first chapter of the book in which a young African-American woman is walking away from a building um, that was shot in Mexico. And it, I felt that it didn't speak as much to me as to, uh, as to the publishers. So I actually override, overrode the publisher. I think he was very bummed about that. But anyway, that's why I chose that particular image. Can you hold up your book up again so we can see it? It's quite massive. I don't know if you can tell. It is. Wow. It's, it's huge. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. I feel like you can dive into this book when you have it open in front of you. It's, it's pretty big. Book. It's also heavy. The first time I picked it up, I dropped it and ripped some of the pages because it oh, weighs no. about five pounds. Wow. Yeah. I want to call your attention to the red along the side. Mm. What are the dimensions of the book? <laughs> it's 11 inches by 11 inches. So it's big. It's available. You can buy it. <laughs> <laughs> all of my launches, all of the events, all my presentations have been canceled because of oh, this. Oh, yeah. So I feel your pain. Did your strand one happen, though? Pardon me? Did your event at the Strand happen or not? I did, but it was on March 12th, the day that everything in New York closed down. Yeah. So, Susan, you were one of the people who weren't able to come. There were a couple of full-party people who actually showed up uh, who were willing to take the subway, but it was a very diminished crowd. But it was, it was intimate. It was nice. But they are going to give me another opportunity, so they say, if this period of time ever ends. So I might be able to do it again at the Strand. I was delighted that you were going to be paired with Catherine. I thought that was just a really... Well, she, and she had to cancel. She couldn't oh, really? go to New York. Yeah, yeah, she never made it. So the person who, who I was paired with was a woman named Julia Dean, who's the director of the Los Angeles Center of Photography. Yeah. She happened to be in New York, and she's also a photographer and a photojournalist. So it was quite interesting, actually having it, but it was a, it was a small group. It, it, it was kind of a bummer. And the next day, everybody fled New York if they could. So it was kind of the last normal, semi-normal day. Do you have other questions? I'm happy to talk about it. This is great since all the other things were canceled. <laughs> I'm just gonna take I actually sent a couple of questions. Um, I don't know if they've already been answered. Can I ask them? Sure. Um, so one of them was, and I don't know if this was already answered because I came in late, so you can just tell me if it was already answered. One of them was that I, how long did the book take you from the shoot part of it to design to printing? Uh, no, that question was not asked. So the images were created over a five-year period. Right. 
And I started working on the book in October 2018. And I received my first advanced copy, I think in January of this year. So I would say the production of the book was about 18 months. And that, that did not include the creation of the images. That was post-creation. So it was an 18-month process. The yeah, easiest- I have a question. Sure. Did you finish your answer or I don't know? Yeah, some... yeah, that's fine, yeah. Thank you. So uh, Fran, I know you printed in China and there were some issues with that advanced copy. Mm -hmm. How did that get resolved? Um, in terms All right. What Marcy is referring to is that the first, the first advanced copies I received were in July, which were exactly right on schedule, but I rejected them. I, uh, I was not happy with the printing. I was mm. not happy with the publisher's representative in China. And there were a thousand copies that had been printed mm. that I absolutely refused. Oh my God. Very difficult, but my feeling and my feeling is that I, I worked so hard on this book and I wanted a book that I could be proud of. There were certain things uh, about the printing process that I was extremely disappointed in. And that had to do with the way the ink was laid on the paper, uh, the, the lack of varnish, which I had specified. And these images, I wanted, I wanted the luminosity of each image to replicate as much as possible the luminosity of looking at an image on your screen so that it looks as if light is coming from, from underneath, that there's a sense of glow. And that wasn't achieved in the first printing. So I rejected those and then took over the process of printing myself. I found a different printer, another one. The first one was in Hong Kong which was having its own issues at the time because it was during the civil unrest in Hong Kong. That might've been the problem, I don't know. But I found a different printer in China, uh, in Shenzhen, and I worked very closely with the printer's representative uh, and, and took over that part of the process. So then I received another advanced copies and that was I think in December and I had some issues with those, but they fixed it. They made all the changes I had requested. And then the final advanced copy came in January, which is the one that I accepted. And that's the one that you, that's now available. So it was a really long, complicated uh, process, not for the faint of heart. There were six weeks in which I just really was incredibly frustrated and didn't know how I was going to manage it. But if any of you ever do a book, I really encourage you to just stay on top of it and don't accept something you're not satisfied with. It's not about the money. It's about what the product looks like. In that case, how did you connect with those two Chinese printers? Was that? Well, the first, the first printer was the one that Unicorn had used and they contracted. The way the publisher works is they don't own the printing company. They contract with a, a company, a printing company. So they work with a company called Latitude Press, and they work with a printer that had a very good reputation. And that printer was in uh, Hong Kong. Um, that was the one that I rejected. The second one, for some reason, when I was working on this process, I received some samples of some art books by a company in China called Artron. 
And they were obviously trying to pitch their work to me, but I had already had a contract. But I kept those samples and I remembered the name of it. And then when uh, the shit hit the fan and I was thinking about how I could fix this problem, I got back in touch with the Artron and it just so happened that my designer knew the printer's representative for Arch for another printer's representative for Artron, this guy in California, and he was the one that I actually hired, and he took he he was the one who managed the process. Uh, there were various different steps along the way, but I ended up printing it. This book is printed by Artron, and it's not uh, it's not a trade book. It's an art book and I now realize that there's a difference between most photo books which are really considered trade books and yep. art books, coffee table books which is what I wanted so that's what I got but I ended up having to pay a substantial amount more of money than I had originally expected I would have to pay the original contract I had with uh, Unicorn was fairly minimal I mean it was definitely something I could handle between grants and sales and and donations but then when i shifted printers i did have to pay the difference no. the so. site can't be reached so sib is back on the call okay <laughs> <laughs> well what's interesting hi everybody i'm on with my phone and somehow our home based router has stopped um so i'm gonna go over here and um yeah, so um, Eric is my technical support and is helping me figure this out. Um, but I'm happy, I wanted to open this to a, a conversation, so I'm pleased with that. But I also wanted to riff on the work, which I'm not able to show you more work at the moment, but let's keep fielding questions. And the thing that makes me happy is this is recording. Um, so we will have a truncated session, but I'll be able to get one recording of our of our meeting. So it sounds like you were getting into some specifics on the bookmaking. Um, and yeah, I would just open it to people. And Deb, I think you can see the um, muting, unmuting, if there needs to be any. But I've lost my, uh, my yeah. dashboard. <laughs> oh, there we go. Hang on. I, I can take it from here, if that's. Go ahead. So open up to questions. Well, I do have one other question. It's sort of a second part, but I just wondered, and some of this you've already answered, but overall, uh, in light of how critical each element of your book is, which clearly between typology and imagery, the backgrounds and so forth, and the luminosity that you mentioned, I just wondered how much involvement in the end um, you feel the publisher or the printer affected uh, those choices, whether they were design issues or just practical issues or expense issues, and how much you, what percentage you got to sort of override that, and and you know, and how that sort of thing worked out. The publisher did very little, as I said, in terms of the cover design. That was ultimately my decision. Uh, the publisher really was almost a, a non-participant in the process. They. Uh, my publisher's representative edited the book, but he didn't have to do anything because I, I already produced all the writing and I submitted the writing. So there were no changes there. 
Um, I think all the publisher did was get me the ISDN number uh, uh. and work out the distribution. It's distributed by University of Chicago and they manage that. But the publisher was very, very little involved with it. So all the decisions were made by me and with the help of my designer. But that was pretty much, that was really it. Thank you. Hey, I just have to tell you, I am back in You're the back. saddle. Yay. <laughs> oh. Yay, I can show you work, which I'm really pleased. And um, sorry for the technological glitch, but um, this is just such an interesting uh, ride, right? We are all learning as we're going. So are there some other specific yes, questions? I have a, I have a, yes, I have a psychological question. <laughs> Hi, Lee. Hi, this is Leah. So after you found your, <clears throat> your other four chapters that dealt with those liminal spaces, whatever each of the four was, did you feel better? I mean, like, We lost, lost her. I lost the question. Hmm. Um, what I could garner from what she was starting Did to you, say. Can you hear me now? Yeah, can now I know. Mm -hmm. Oh. It's sort of going in and out, I think. Okay. Can you, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Can you yes. hear me? Yes. Your video is um, stopping and I starting. I think it's a streaming issue. And Fran, I think what I could get was she was asking if the um, the matrix of having the chapters, uh, she said it was a psychological question. Thinking, I'm thinking she's asking about, was there relief once you had a framework? Yes, the, que yes, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, once. Once things were sequenced, once the chapters were organized, then it really started to flow together. One thing I did that's a little bit different is that I wanted, I wanted what I would like to call a palate cleanser in every one of the chapters. So rather than have all of my images exactly about the same kind of thing, I sometimes varied it. So occasionally I throw in an image or include an image that was a little bit offbeat or a little bit of an outlier. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that in every chapter. For example, in the portrait section, I have that one spread of the young man, it's called Lucas at 14, which mm -hmm. is very different than the other ones. Yes. So each one of my chapters has a little bit of a surprise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In light of the whole image that you just showed, Sibylla, this is Daryl and mm -hmm. if you just go back one, yeah, I just was wondering because I've noticed how precise um, the way you have your edges on images, like sometimes there'll be a portrait dropped in and it has, it looks like it has a white edge so you can actually see the edge of it and then other times it's seamless and in this one, for example, there's a sort of rough edge mm -hmm. and I think sometimes artists worry about being really consistent, not consistent, when it matters or doesn't doesn't matter. I just wondered how you made those kinds of choices, Fran. Well, that, the way this image was made was exactly as you see it. 
So when I created my images for print, for example, I don't necessarily have a clear frame. So this, if this image were hanging on the wall, that's exactly what you would see. So I wanted a sense of roughness, like uh, kind of a, uh, a suggestion of a 19th century photograph in this image. And I maintain that in the book as well. And the so, ones where there are the portraits that are dropped in, like there were a few I saw that had like a white edge, I think, I don't know if it's the screen or not. Then there are others where the portrait just seamlessly, the edge of the print where it's dropped in on the page sort of blends into the background. Yeah, yeah. And how did you make those kinds of choices? I just found them really interesting because sometimes, like you, when you mentioned about a palette cleanser, sometimes when you go through a book, you turn page after page, and as beautiful as it might be, it could almost become a little repetitious, and I don't find that here because of those kinds of changes. And I just wondered how did you that's, No, that's, a, that's exactly right. I, I agree with you that when I go through photo books as much as I like the photography, I can find it boring to see the same kind of layout page after page. So yeah, I, I wanted some variation. And I did. I, I played around with it. So each page was designed almost as a separate piece of art. Wow. And that, and that's what I wanted to maintain throughout the book without overwhelming the viewer with constant changes. So that was one of the challenges of designing this book was having a sense of uniqueness in every spread, but also a sense of integration and cohesion. But I, I think if I'm not mistaken, is the question about the freedom that Fran has to do with the edges what she wants and that it varies and that what you were referring to in the question is that yeah. the, the, the freedom to do that so that in, in this particular case, you've really got that kind of edging happening and in the. Just lost you, Sibella. Can Hello? you hear me? Can you hear me? I, I can hear Fran, Sibella just froze. Oh, and, wait, there you go. There you go. Yeah, actually, I was asking, I guess, both of those. I think um, the context, the background that you have, Fran, of being a designer, it enables a person to look and then also to break the rules in a way that doesn't, that still is, is pleasing. The challenge when someone doesn't know as much about design, perhaps, is you break the rules, then you go too far off, and then there's this sort of jarring note where it doesn't all come together. It's not as integrated. So I think my question is somewhat um, based on the fact that you have a certain background where you can make those kinds of choices and it still looks as a cohesive whole. And I just, so that's why I was just curious how conscious, and I, I know all of these choices are of course very specific and conscious. So, um, so some of the question is sort of philosophical and also technical in, in light of the, it, like whether or not you have, took control of each and every one of those things. But I thank you for your answer. I think the idea that you created each spread as sort of individual and yet part of a cohesive whole, um, it, that sort of answers what I, was, what I was trying to understand, what I was asking, I think. It, it, yeah, I that was a really good in, uh, I'm just gonna jump in with an interpretation here um, to say that it sounds like you, Fran, you have a toolbox and it, it, it is one that you dip into depending on where you are in the process and that it has a flexibility there. And 
and yes. that yeah. you can in, you can put it in, you can take it out, but it's part of your your toolbox. And if I were to extrapolate from this, I would say I would encourage people to experiment and expand their toolbox. So if it's a graphic design background that allows Fran to do that without feeling like she's breaking a rule, um, I guess I'm encouraging photographers to break the rules and also to really play with the edges of your medium a lot. And, and it brings me to just two points I, I want to bring out. Um, I asked to put this in our chat room as a, um, a reference, but one of the people that wrote about you, Fran, talked about this idea of a revealed uncollage, mm. which I found fascinating. So um, that article link will be in there. But what it's on the was... top, Sib, and I'm going to put it in again at the bottom here. Okay, great. Because the, the name of the article is The Uncollage in Photography, and uh, it was in Col Collage. Collage. I don't know, is it yeah. Collage Magazine. It was written by Todd Bartell. And what he is eliciting, and he's going back historically and, and in current times, is this idea of the presence of the um, physically evident components. So Fran is an example for the most part, I'd say predominantly allowing you to see that there are individual elements. Like there's a physicality to the elements. Like we have a sense that that in this particular picture, those two people were not in a landscape where that glider was coming over them. <laughs> and, and that that is part of the process and the work. And so it's really interesting that it looks at photo montage and looks at it related to historical paintings and, and what we're doing with our, our edges, whether they're seamless or not. Um, and then what happened around the digital revolution to change that. Um, Sib, Sib, can I break in for a second? Of can course. Uh, the last comment, I, I don't know who made it, but uh, in terms of breaking out of the traditional frame, I think it was easier in some ways for me to do that because my entry into the world of photography was already breaking all the rules. And my early foray in photography was in the 1970s when I, my images then usually had a figure coming out of the frame. So I was already frustrated by the construct, the, co the constraints of the frame. And yes. then when I became involved, when I got involved in photo montage, the first comments I received from photographers was, this isn't photography, why are you showing it as a photograph? So I was already a rule breaker <laughs> very early on. And I guess it made it easier to think in terms of there are no rules. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever is aesthetically pleasing you want in any kind of production. So I guess in that sense, I, I was already kind of encouraged, or at least I, I felt like I had free reign to not follow tradition. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, actually, just the person who'd asked, that was me, Daryl, and I, I'm blacked out because... Um, I was having lunch while I was listening, but anyway, <laughs> but really, no, but I've been listening to every, every word. Um, yeah, no, that, that does help a lot. And I guess part of the reason I was asking that question so much is I, um, or with some depth is because 
um, aside from, as Sibylla mentioned, your toolbox, and as you were saying, having this background, um, you know, I think a lot of times people break the rules before they know what they are. So sometimes it's successful, and sometimes it isn't so successful. So I was really captivated by this um, conundrum and the way I see you explore it within what you've done with the book, which is really very balanced and yet also very um, like surprising each thing that there isn't, it's, it's, so I just was curious about how that all came together and, and you answered that and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And you were making me think of something else. Oh, that the idea of, um, I remember, um, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a visual artist and I've worked in other mediums like fashion. And uh, at one point when I was living in Brooklyn, I was really into poetry and I ended up in this ad hoc writing group. And what was hilarious is every other person in the group was an aspiring writer on some part of the continuum to publication. And this is all about poetry and I wasn't. And I didn't have the constraints that they did because I came in completely free. It, I, I didn't need an endpoint. I was in there for the joy of the writing. And, and honestly, my process was, was assisted by that freedom. Um, so it's interesting, uh, the, the expectations we put on ourselves and, and, and what we can or can't do, trying to go in the right order. Um, I was thinking about uh, Jerry Olsman and wondering if you looked at his work or not, uh, because he did this kind of um, montaging before there was the digital access oh, and ability. Sure. So no, I saw I saw his work. I think in the seventies, and he definitely influenced me. But I was also influenced by Dwayne Michaels and Ralph Eugene Meatyard. So those were the three photographers that excited me when I started in traditional photography. So mm -hmm. yeah, you, Olsman is definitely a, a major figure. Uh, well, in, 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 in reading some of the links that you sent me, I learned of your cinematic interest. And I think it's really interesting. Um, it references that you're inspired by film noir and, and that you actually feel like a choreographer or a director. Mm -hmm. And some of your references um, made me look up different people because I, I wasn't familiar with them. Um, I'm going through my notes to try to find the person. So um, somebody, somebody just sent a message to me asking about Maggie Taylor. Sure, yeah. she, I mean, she was obviously one of the first um, also to be doing photo montage and mm -hmm. obviously received um, a lot of support from her husband at the time, Jerry Wolfman. Mm -hmm. No, her work was it still is wonderful. Uh, mm -hmm. And at one time, I think my work was probably similar to hers in that I also used 19th century imagery, but mm -hmm. I've moved away from, from that kind of imagery. And uh, as you can see, it's very different now. But the process that she uses is very similar to what I use, what Tom Chambers uses, uh, I don't know, there must, I'm sure there are many other photo montage artists, but we all really kind of live in the same world. We use the same tools, we just make different images. What I think is interesting though, especially around the cinematography component, is a lot of, um, so your original intent is to try to capture in still form 
something that's moving. So the, the note in between is, is an action, right? It might be a, an inhale, but it is still an action. So I think it's interesting to think about the, the impact of the moving image on your process and your, your, it's inspiration, but it's also intention. So you're trying to show movement in a still form. Exactly. It's the, mo it's the moment between moments that I'm showing. It's that split second that you don't really pay attention to because there's something before and something after. Mm -hmm. And so the moment I'm showing is what is between those two more significant moments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, and it's interesting to think about what you um, sparked in me was I went on a little explore of Michael, is it Haneke? Han mm -hmm. Haneke, yeah. Haneke. And yeah. I ended up seeing the empowering the spectator. Um, and it was just interesting when you talk about your references and then I look at your references, I see the echo of that. Like, I just happened to land on this, but I know that Hopper was an influence for you and you can certainly feel a Hopper-esque oh, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. piece to this. And, yeah. and I'm not trying to do this to nail you to anyone else. This is all you, but it is just more to contextualize your work and to help people see the steps that you made to your work. Because as an artist, you're going to be asked, how, how did you get here? And, and what were some of those steps? What were some of the challenges? You're right about Hopper. Uh, as much as I fell in love with Vermeer and the 17th century Dutch, then I fell in love with Hopper. And also Andrew Wyeth is a big influence that I didn't even mention, but you know, it all goes into the minestrone that's your mind. And I don't know <laughs> how, I don't know how it comes out, but it all gets kind of mushed up together and comes out in, in a Fran Foreman kind of way. But yeah, I, I feel like, you know, we're all indebted to so many different artists that we've, and, and cinematographers and poets that we've enjoyed mm -hmm. over the years. It, it just comes out. It comes out in different ways. Absolutely. So, That's why, yeah. I mean, appropriation and, and reintegration and reimagining is what we do. It um, is, yeah, yeah. I wanted to go to these two images because you mentioned them in your afterword, but then I didn't, it, they left me with the question because could you tell us why these are important or you, you basically said you learned from them. I, I don't so know if these are, let me just say one thing, if they're okay. examples of how frustrated you are with the frame and how mm -hmm. you figured out how to get around it, perhaps that's what's going on. But but I really enjoyed both these images and I think that you put them out as something that displeased you. So I need to hear about that. Well, what I said in my afterward is that I've learned a lot from mistakes that I've made and also about the constraints of the rectangle. So these images were made in, I think, 1973 or 74 when I was traveling by myself. And this image is one of my favorite images, but it was actually a mistake. Mm -hmm. I was trying to shoot the children's heads and the camera <laughs> slipped and I ended up loving this instead. So that's an example of a mistake that I learned a lot from. I just Excellent. found it much more interesting because you don't need to see the kids' faces to know what they're doing. So that one that's, was interesting. 
Fabulous. Because I was, I was honestly confused. I was like, mistake. I really like that image. <laughs> like, I was, I, I really thank you. That's so interesting. And and now when I yeah. when I make my images now, there are tons of mistakes I make. My mouse slips, or I, I confuse something, and then I learn. And sometimes I end up actually embracing that. So. As Deb Henley just said, yeah, happy accident. So that was a very Absolutely. happy accident that I definitely learned from. Yeah, and the one on and the next. Yeah, this, this one. So yeah. this one is about what I referred to earlier about feeling constrained by the frame. Mm -hmm. So this is a self-portrait <laughs> self also from the early 70s in which I was clearly trying to move out of the frame. Mm -hmm. So when I'm... What, what I see as I look back at my early work is that mm -hmm. I was interested in movement, in narrative, and that I was frustrated by the rectangle. So, and it's <laughs> well, you still found, true. And, well, and you found your way out of it, actually. I did. And well, you, the, found, you found the, a way to play in it. Well, the technology actually became my friend. I mean, thankfully, I was able to grow into this technology, which allows me to do this a lot mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. So I really loved these two images. I'm going to say one other thing, and I want to open up to questions. Um, uh, in terms of reading from your 30-plus um, writing contributors, I loved the line from Larry. Well, it's not a line. It's his writing, but Larry Fink, where he mm -hmm. said, send me your eye, and I'll give you my give heart. Give my heart. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. I love that. I yep. love that. He's yep. a poet. I mean, he's He's one of those rare, rare people who is just as brilliant in his poetry as he is in his artwork. Mm -hmm. Very rare. I, he's just amazing. Well, also, you know what? He's a musician. Um, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Oh, oh my goodness. He. <laughs> yes, he's quite the um, the harmonica comes oh, out at all times. Oh. Um, and he's very, very good. Um, which just underscores, I think, the layering of the different mediums. And I, I understand that, you know, you've maybe dabbled in encaustics. I know that mm -hmm. you've made some sculptural pieces. Yeah. I, I can't say enough about playing in these other toolboxes, but could you tell us about how that's, how that is for you? Is it, is it something that you are exploring or is it something that you've always done? I became interested in encaustic about 10 years ago because of the idea of layering one image over another. Mm -hmm. So I have, a, I have a dedicated studio in my house now that's really just for encaustic work. And there have been times over the past decade or so in which I spend a lot of time making encaustic images, but, but I've been doing less and less of it recently. And I occasionally find myself wandering up to that studio thinking I should really do something, but I find myself now much more interested in continuing the work I've been doing with these narrative images. One problem with encaustic is that I can't say as much, I, I love the process, but I can't quite articulate what I'm unconsciously trying to say, which I can do much better with my photo collages. And the other thing is, and this was something I learned from a number of different artists and a photographer named RJ Kern said this to me recently when he explained why he doesn't do his own printing. He said, he knows he can do certain things really well and there's certain things that other people can do better. And for him, it's printing. 
And that's kind of how I feel about encaustic or mixed media work at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. I don't feel as if I, I can master it well enough to be able to say what it is I want to say. So for me, it's become a hobby. When mm -hmm. I get sick of doing digital work or photo collage work, I'll wander upstairs and I'll get my hands dirty and I'll burn stuff with a hot encaustic wax. <laughs> and then I feel satisfied. And then I go back and do what I want to do with my real, this is my job. This is my life. The encaustic stuff is my hobby. I guess mm -hmm. I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. Can I stop at this picture that you just showed for a minute just to mention Back something up. about it? Yes. Okay, this one. So this, the background of this was actually shot at the Gardner Museum, the Isabella Stewart Gardner. And the model uh, is standing in front of an empty image. And that image was the Rembrandt painting that was stolen from the Gardner in 1991. Mm -hmm. And he's holding a ball. And I don't know if you can see it in your image, but there's a suggestion of an image, which is actually the, uh, a detail from the painting that was stolen, which is mm -hmm. Rembrandt's Tempest, mm -hmm. a tempest uh, at sea. So, and then the boy is reflected in the painting, which is a composite of the original painting and the boy as well. So I just wanted to point that out. So it's these little kind of Easter eggs that many of my images have in them. Of course, nobody mm -hmm. cares or would notice, but I just wanted to mention it. Absolutely. I think it's important to mention, especially as you're talking to artists, to help them, uh, you're articulating steps in your process and that can only help other people. Also for, um, you know, in terms of knowing that that's the gardener and that that is the actual space. I mean, other artists, Sophie Cal did an entire, uh, art project and series on the empty frames. So it's really interesting to see where um, your inspiration comes from and where you run with that. And then how you can have a thread going back to someone like Sophie Cow uh, all over this stolen artwork. So I think that it's a, I think it's a fun uh, detail that, you know, enriches our, our experience of it. Um, I want to ask, let other people ask some questions. I, I have a question to ask. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were talking about your toolbox and that you like going to museums and taking pictures of photographs. And I'm sure you're taking pictures also of frames. What other things do you, do you sort of have sort of on your computer, a set of images of people that you've taken, a set of wallpapers? How, how do you create that? Where, where does your collage sort of lie that you pick and choose from? Uh, yes, I have many, many different folders on my computer, which I can access through Lightroom and an entire folder of wallpaper. I have many, many different portraits of people that I've taken. And again, those are um, organized by name and date. And I have folders of objects, folders of backgrounds. And I also have source material of different paintings that, that I've shot from museums. So I, I think that answers your question. So yes, um, usually I start, it's not a process I can ever explain very well because I don't know where I start except I'll go through my files and there must be something about a particular image that resonates with me at that moment. And then I start playing with it almost like creating, almost like creating a room in a dollhouse in which 
You start moving things around, start moving uh, objects around, make little paper dolls that might fit in. It's like being a puppeteer and moving things around until you see relationships uh, of foreground, background, object to object, and so forth. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very intuitive kind of complex project uh, process that's really hard to articulate. Could I get back to the publisher issue? Sure. Well, you said aside from ISBN and distributor distribution, they did very little. But what what is their role in this whole thing? I it's not. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering too. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> well, they handle the distribution, they go to book fairs, and I, as I said, I wanted to work with this company because they do the, Frank, the Frankfurt Book Fair, the London Book Fair, they did, had a, theoretically a more European-centric uh, distribution network. But to be honest, if I were to ever do this again, which I doubt, I don't think I have enough years in my life left to actually live through this process again, I might actually think about doing it on my own. You know, I'm not sure at this point, unless, unless you can work with a major publisher like Abrams or uh, Nerzelli, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the role oh, man. is. Well, I mean, I, I, I've met people who now do their own distribution. They hire a <laughs> distributor. You know, I, I, I'm not sure. Well, I've, got, I've gone through this with my clients, I help, I help people write their family histories. And some of them are more particular than others, but they want to self-publish. And so, you know, what you did with knowing enough to say no to the first things you saw, that's one thing that I really can't do. So it's kind of a, Self-publishing is great, and you're in a better position to do it than most people. I really um, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm lucky, but it's, uh, it's, as I said, it's not for the faint of heart. It really right. isn't. It so isn't. I agree. We need to find a better model. I'm <laughs> interested to know if you used um, a single camera for the project, Fran, or a variety of cameras. I just, I use two cameras. I have my Nikon, my 7200, which is sitting right here. And I have a Sony mirrorless, which I use a little bit, but it's most, most of this is done with my Nikon. Thank you. Fran, I have a question. I see in the book that there are several spreads where you might have this, it looks like the same image. Like one is in the attic with the candlestick on the table. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one with girl with a window, I guess, where mm -hmm. it's almost like the same set or image. And one might be a close-up or detail, like a, a square vignette of a rectangular image. Mm -hmm. um, were those conceived or did... Um, did this is an example of one. This is on the left is a piece of a larger... Image well, that's, later a, in the that's book. a detail. That's a detail right. from a, an image that's in the fifth chapter. Mm -hmm. These ones are in the beginning of the book, in that first chapter, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. No, those are two different images that I took at very different times. Okay, because they look like they have the same, uh, yeah, this one, for example, the one that's on the left appears well, to me to be... Well, this is a detail of the one that's on the right. Okay, so... 
you conceived of the image as the rectangle and then the choice to put that detail there was that yours the designers or how that was that? mine yeah okay yep there are a couple and, occasions in the book in which i show details of these images right because some people really think of themselves as square format uh photographers and others as rectangular i don't know that you have that um, allegiance probably no. coming from a graphic I, design background where you've cropped a lot of people's work over there. Yeah, no, yeah. No, I don't have an allegiance to square. I insisted on a square format book, which the publisher at first did not want to do, but I wanted a square format book, but that became a bit of an issue because most of my images are rectangular. What made but you again, go for a square book? I just love the feel of it. I mean, that's just an aesthetic decision on my part. Yeah. There's, there's no logic. I just like the way it looks. <laughs> yeah, I have a similar feeling. And there's some images towards the back, the ones with the airplanes. Did those originate as squares? Because I seem to remember some of them as being... Yeah, those were squares. Those were, they were, no, those were squares. squares. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. May I ask a question about um, some of the programs you use? I, I kind of, I love your, your imagery and I hate to kind of ask about the nitty gritty of it. But you mentioned Lightroom. Do you also, do you do the majority of your kind of color correction in Lightroom and then use Photoshop or how do you like? Uh, I use Lightroom primarily, almost exclusively for cataloging. Uh, and I don't really use it for development. So then when, I've, uh, when I start working on an image, I bring it into Photoshop and I immediately go to Camera Raw. And I do a lot of my corrections with Camera Raw. And then I and then I and then I generally start to silhouette part of my images, which is really the most time-consuming, tedious part of the process. Right. So uh, that's the flow, more or less. And then I, I kind of abandon Lightroom once I start working in Photoshop. I don't really need Lightroom anymore. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And we probably have time for like two more questions or so because we got started a little late. I have a question. Um, I just wondered, well, two things. Well, one, I wondered, so there's a lot of uh, work from the walls of museums, and there's a lot of models. Coming from an editorial background, I just wanted to know how you thought about or dealt with the aspect of um, releases and, and any of that kind of thing. Like, what things did you need releases for? What things you didn't really? And that sort I, of thing. I need releases for the models. So I have releases for all the models and all the writers, but not for the museum pieces, no. I did think about it and I spoke, uh, I spoke to a number of people, including two lawyers who said that since things were altered, more than 75%, I didn't have to worry about it. I don't think, I don't think anybody's gonna sue me for shooting the wallpaper, for example. You know, no, I was thinking about the artwork, you know, but I, there's also that appropriation aspect of it too. So I realized yeah, that- Yeah, no, 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 I'm very, no, it, it's, uh, it's clear that I appropriate, but I appropriate pieces, I don't appropriate the whole thing. For example, this is close to a Vermeer, yeah. but, but, it's, but it's also altered quite a bit. So um, I'm not terribly worried. If the Rijksmuseum wants to sue me, let them try. <laughs> I'm not really that worried about it. And don't you have the MIT building in the background? Yeah, there. the Strata building, but I shot that building. I just went down to MIT and sat in my car and shot the building, so. 
I use that building in a couple different places, by the way. It's a terrific building to photograph. It's a great building. It's a great juxtaposition, yeah. yeah. though. It's such be really fun to pull a show together of that building in all these different places and ways. Yeah. And do you own all these bird cages? I'm lusting after. No, <laughs> no, I don't own any of them. They're all created digitally. Really? Oh. Yeah, I don't have a single bird cage in my house. Oh my God, that's great. So those bird cages are bird cages that I've shot in my various different wanderings, but in Photoshop, I have to cut them away from the background, which is right. a pain because there's yeah. always something, but so you can imagine how tedious that is, but yeah. I, this is uh, Dawn. Um, yeah. I just, I'm so drawn in by your sense and understanding of space. And I was a dancer choreographer before I started doing photography. And I wondered if you had a dance background. No, I don't, but my daughter danced with New York City Ballet for over a decade. So I'm the one who had to schlep her to ballet school for 15 years before she moved to New York. Yeah. So yeah. I guess I do have a ballet background <laughs> in that sense. But I all that observing and watching, you know, how one choreographs Moving in space, space. With shape and yeah. line and form. Yeah, no, no, that's a really good point. I'm yeah. really glad you noticed that because yeah. a lot of what I do is choreograph my images. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So yeah, having lived with a daughter doing ballet since she was a very young child, I guess I, I guess you could say I'm a dancer by extension. Certainly a choreographer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's a cinematographer, choreographer is, is, is similar, right? Mm -hmm. I guess it is. Yeah. 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 And you have to work with lighting as much as movement and relationship. So balancing, we talked about relationships of the bodies to each other, the bodies in space and the bodies to music. And yeah, this is very much like that. I mean, not that I want to equate myself with balancing, but it's very similar process in terms of thinking about relationships. Mm -hmm. At the end of this road where you have this amazing work, this book, this kind of cohesive project, um, when you started, did you have a different idea from where it ended? Like how did it, how did it morph perhaps as you went along or did you sort of stay true to your original intent because it was strong enough to carry it all the way through or? Good question. I think I, I think it morphed along as I worked on it. I think the process kind of took over and I started seeing things, relationships about image to image, color to color that occurred over time. No, I did not, it, it was not, it was not well thought out at the very beginning. But that's a very good question. Well, that gives hope to a lot of people who, because sometimes <laughs> I think people, it's hard for people to start because they don't know where it will end. And that, that, that can be a very, yeah, this is Daryl Ann again. So, but I, I appreciate your, you know, your, your answering that because I think, I think that that can stop people sometimes because they're not. Daryl, I'm not, I'm not a very linear thinker and mm -hmm. I'm not a logical thinker. I don't think I could ever create something like this that way. It just, <laughs> it's not the way my brain works. It would be easier if it did, but it's, it's not. What was the major change? Was there any major change along the way? Um, what you recall? Yeah, I think the organization of the chapters was something that developed over time. It wasn't the way I envisioned it initially. And uh, also adding the little, what, 
what my one of my gallerists called a palette cleanser at the beginning of each <coughs> chapter. There's just a solid color spread. There's no image. It's just a spread of color with a line, a very thin, a, a very short line of text. That was something that came towards the end of the process. And that's because the book felt too massive that there was, we, he felt, and I think he was right. I mean, I know he was right, that I had to, I, I needed to, uh, I, I needed to see, I needed to develop each section, each chapter, almost as a book in itself. That it was too dense. There was too much stuff. So yeah. that that worked as a way to kind of rest the eye to move into the next chapter, to give a break to the eye, to the mind. So that happened towards the end of the process. What's nice about the text is it's not empty space, but it doesn't occupy as much as an image. And so it does give you a rest. Yeah, yeah. The rest between two notes. Yeah. Right. Yep. Thank you. Just you mentioned not being a linear or logical thinker, and it would be easier if you would. And I've been sitting here thinking about when you talk about uh, moving images or images taken years ago and adding it to the project. I am a linear thinker, and that's what stops me from progress a lot of the times because I'm so A equals B equals C that I it's hard for me to break out of that linear con uh, construct and just kind of open the gates. So it's actually harder for me being linear and logical too. But there are probably uh, many things you could do that I can't do a well, lot better I than I can. I don't know. It's hard for me to commit because if it if it's not sequential or uh, choreographed in a <clears throat> timeline, you know that that is consistent, I have trouble. I get blocked. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because I work with so many different creatives and the process being so different and I can give you a, um, a flip side to someone who is such an experimenter and I was working with him and we had a solo show we were getting ready for and I basically had to contact with him that he could no longer experiment past a certain date because yeah. we have to have something <laughs> on the wall. So. I think what's completely serious, it was hilarious. And, and so it's really about working with the pros and cons because there are to all of our ways of thinking, right? Um, there's a freedom in some and there's a structure in another. Um, the, uh, the impetus for me to teach is to make everyone trade places so, um, so that you just exercise different muscles because you will go back to your predominant form, but if you've played in some others, it will inform your work in a way that, that actually gives it a little bit more air, a little bit more space. Mm -hmm. um, but that's an interesting piece. And um, I'm gonna ask for one more question and then I, I have two quick things. So any other question? I'll raise my hand. Unless someone else wants to. So the last session, Sib, that you had the author photographer talked about taking all of the images and being in a small room with the designer and several students and having mm -hmm. little four by fives that she moved around the wall to right. kind of develop her concept and her sequence. So my question for Fran is, because you have such a large body of work over a long period of time, 
did you start with saying, okay, these are my anchor images and build on that? Or did you just put Fran's greatest hits in a room and then <laughs> stick them all up on the bulletin board with uh, sticky notes there and think about where they go? I mean, I know you said like at one point you put a page together for the writers to respond to, but to get to that page, how did you distill down your work and really think what you wanted to include? That, that, when I put the page together of those 110 or 120 images, that was towards the end of that beginning process. So the way that I started was, as you would say, take my favorite pictures, my greatest hits, and make little four by five, four by six Xeroxes. And I don't have a wall big enough to put them on, so I laid them out on the floor. And then laying, and then it was so overwhelming, Marcy, that I just, got frustrated and put them back in a box again and waited a couple <laughs> days and then tried it again the next day and then the next day and the next day and of course my cat would walk on them and they would rearrange themselves or the wind but over time i would start moving them around to start looking for relationships and it really was a that was by far the most daunting part of the whole process was trying to see how these images related to one another and what kind of sequence they could go in and how they could be organized in terms of chapters. But that's how I had to do it. And it really took a long, long period of time. And um, once I thought that I had a group together, then I would constantly move things around. Honestly, I think my designer deserves the Nobel Prize because I kept changing things. I mean, she would start working on them in the sequence that I'd given her. And then I would look at what she did and I changed my mind. So she'd have to go back and rearrange things. And of course, it was more complicated because not only the text had to coordinate with the image, oh, yeah. but the images mm. had to be in a particular format to accommodate the text. And the colors, the color choices, those color fields, those were all very intentionally considered based on not only the images, but what the image was before and what the image was after that one. So every time I changed my sequence, she had to rearrange everything. So it was like a huge game of pickup sticks that was constantly changing. Mm. So it's amazing she and I are still friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a very complicated process. And did you create yes. any new work well, during the period where you were doing this sequence? The, yes, I did. There, the very last image, uh, which is a long spread of the boy peeking around the corner and there's two, a violinist woman and a young child with a violin. That's mm -hmm. the last image. I created that for the end of it. Mm -hmm. And the very first image, which is a picture of a chair uh, just in front of a window. Mm -hmm. I already had that image, but I put an insect on the window and that was done at the very end of the process too. So that's the first and the last images I created for this book specifically. So I uh, want to wrap uh, only uh, in, in, I think we could go on, but um, I actually um, just want to come around to one other point and have enough time to just touch on it. And that's that um, more than one person, and I think you yourself, Fran, mentioned that this work references hope. I think it was in the foreword by Paula Tognarelli and certainly other people, I think you yourself, 
saw the work as a gesture or referencing hope. And given that we're in a time where we need hope, um, I just wondered if you could comment on that. Um, yeah, well, I'm feeling the same despair that everybody else is feeling, the same worries, the concern, not only about the pandemic, but about the long-term impact this is going to have on our society, our families, our friends, our health. It's a little hard to feel hopeful now. All I can tell, all I can say is that this too will pass, that we all will get through it one way or the other. I think we're all going to be changed. I don't know how, I'm not sure for the better, but we're all gonna be different. This time next year, we're gonna be different people than we are now. Um, for me, I, I'm lucky as you all are in that we all have our art, which is a great distraction, a great way to use our time is to, it, pardon me? A great way to stay busy uh, and yes, create. To, yes, to stay busy. Um, to lose ourselves in, in the moment, in the zone for periods of time. We're lucky about that. Uh, you know, I, I don't, when I did this book, I think I felt more hopeful than I do at this particular moment, but I hope somebody gets a sense of feeling hopeful from the book. It will pass, this time will pass. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that um, one of the things that, uh, the, re the whole reason I'm doing the book group and teaching Concept Aware each week is that uh, I know that creativity s builds hope and it's something that we need now. And that in creativity is the ability to imagine what isn't. And we actively as a society actually need to think and, 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 and work on our collective imagination because we're not going to go back there is no going back so what could we learn from what didn't didn't work pre this pandemic that we can change going forward and so where i see the hope in in creativity is this strengthening of your ability to imagine outside the frame outside the box really expand the toolbox um, and of course it is a respite every person that has been a part of our, our um, online meetings talks about that. It is literally a, um, you know, same as going for a walk or making a nice <laughs> meal. Um, it is strengthening us. So um, thank you all for, for coming and for, um, uh, for Fran, for you generously helping us weave through your book and poke and prod and ask questions and respond. Um, so um, I am going to uh, thank you, Fran, for your time. Thank everyone for their time. Um, we are set up to do our weekly book group going forward. And I have different authors and everyone's trying to figure out their exact dates. So those will be coming up on my website uh, in the next couple of days. Um, it's a little bit of Tetris. Um, and then every Friday I teach Concept Aware, uh, which is just a broad brush on my curriculum. And everyone is welcome to that, mostly for visual narratives, but you don't have to be. Um, and just staying in touch and, and sharing resources. So I take what we've learned from this and I put it into um, 
my, uh, it's not necessarily a blog post, but it is definitely a little bite where people can come in and listen to other meetings and the references that we've um, brought up can get shared. So um, Fran showed, uh, shared with me a, a, a PowerPoint that really takes through the um, book presentation and we'll have that up on my website. Um, we'll have the other um, links where you can buy the book because that's uh, an important piece that we want to amplify. So that's also um, in the chat. It will be on my website. It's on Fran's website. Um, so I thank you and hope to see you again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank wonderful you. book. Thanks, Sibylla. Great. Wonderful. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Sib. Oh, my Thank my you pleasure. so much, Fran. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Be safe, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Stay healthy. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you, Sib. It was wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, thank you for doing this. It was great. Great. You're welcome. Glad to have you. Thank you.